This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, an African political scientist assesses the damage inflicted by the United States military presence on the continent. An environmental activist says saving the planet will require getting rid of capitalism, colonialism, and white supremacy. And a longtime prison inmate says the system is about revenge, not rehabilitation. But first, Aisha Noor is a Somali racial justice and human rights activist with the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative. Nora says the best way to deal with over-policing in Black America is to abolish the police. As a Somali, there is definitely, as you had mentioned, you know, the intersection of being Black, as well as largely Muslim and immigrant in this country. And so that does come with really unique challenges and as you've mentioned, you can't really separate that from the history and the formation of this nation as one that is a settler um, colonial state or project. And just the history of forced migration and bringing enslaved Africans here, as well as the um, genocide of uh, indigenous populations and people. And so I think it's really important to place all of our experiences within that context and that history, as well as what's happening today with a shifting dynamic or discourse around what liberation looks like. You know, I've been seeing words like abolition used more often, concepts like defunding, you know, divesting, things that I never really heard in the popular news outlets or within sort of center activist spaces. And so I think but I'm seeing a really big shift towards not only transformation, but transformation that's rooted in Black radical tradition or thought. And so for me, that is definitely very eye-opening and I think it's a moment where organizers or folks who've been in the movement for a very long time, uh, those who are my seniors in the movement and elders and teachers, to really engage this growing momentum towards real change that isn't repeating the same things or working within a system that's meant to break us. So it is a really unique moment, I think, that we're experiencing Yes, because there is a movement, there is in the popular discourse a discussion about the nature of police, why there is a necessity for prisons and such. But that's not reflected in the behavior of the state, which keeps on talking about and making a priority of countering violent extremism. And I think they don't mean white nationalists. No, when the state typically talks about violent extremism, it's targeting black and brown communities, largely activists, those who take issue with the oppression that the state or empire inflicts upon communities. 
And, you know, we've seen historically the manifestation of these programs targeting Black communities, Black Muslims, um, immigrant and Muslim communities, starting from, and even before, COINTELPRO, and, you know, later CVE, which is the Countering Violent Extremism Program. COINTELPRO famously is known to have been a program to disrupt and surveil activism in the civil rights movement. And you can see that it's targeted uh, Martin Luther King, uh, Malcolm Max, and so many others in, in trying to disrupt the fight for liberation. And so programs that are that nefarious are not going to just completely end. They're going to mutate, transform, and even get far more complicated and immersed in civil society. And so when you look at the program like Countering Violent Extremism, it officially launched in 2014 under Obama, and it was piloted in three cities in Boston, L.A., as well as Minneapolis. And it was specifically targeting Muslims, Muslim youth in schools, and, you know, looking at this really dubious process of quote-unquote radicalization that is not rooted in science, is not rooted in really anything except for Islamophobia and xenophobia. And it really just infiltrated communities. It proliferated informants within religious spaces, within schools. You know, it got to levels where your therapist can be deputized against you and you're like a teen who's just living your life. But that opens up a file or inquiry into your life and placed informants in your life who are agent provocateurs, who oftentimes create the plots that they end up trying to criminalize, right? So it's an entire from beginning to end process of intentional criminalization of Black and Brown and Muslim communities and all of those communities in the ways that they intersect. And so that program has just been continuing and they recently, the state recently funded millions of dollars to grantees and the list of the grantees has just been released. And on that, there are universities. Some of the major universities in this country are receiving funding to carry out this program, as well as religious institutions, nonprofit organizations all around the country, some of them getting $800,000 to $1 million to essentially surveil their communities to surveil their patrons, to surveil their neighbors under the guise of community development. So what's happening is it's no longer just direct employees of the state doing this. It is your community networks digitized and heavily funded to do this. So they want Black and other targeted communities to surveil themselves on behalf of the state. Absolutely. And so it's very easy to go undetected and it results in entrapment. It results in people facing life sentences for crimes they never committed. And it's really something that, you know, creates rooted, not being able to really trust your community because you don't know if this next person is just completely fabricating something about you. A simple 
word here or there can just be misconstrued and applied. If you look at majority of the people who are facing these heavy sentences for these crimes that they're being accused of, there's really little to no evidence except for what an informant has to say, who's largely from your community, who more than likely is a friend of yours. And so it's really, we see the impact already, and I can't imagine what the next decade or two will look like, how many people who are going to be in prison because they made friends with the wrong person who tried to entrap them within their own community network. One out of every eight prison inmates in the world is an African-American. And if measured by the number of prisoners, the United States is the biggest police state in the world. So how can one expect a state like that and its operatives to even be capable of conceiving of a world in which they're are not prisons, and deeper and deeper penetration into people's lives? I mean, that's a really good question. And I think that that is one that many of us grapple with, is just looking at the sheer numbers and the statistics. And, you know, many of us in this work, and this is a lot of our lived experience, so we know a lot of folks who are facing these heavy, you know, sentences and who are wrongfully convicted. So when we look at the stats and how it's really stacked against true justice and liberation, it can be so daunting to imagine a world or society that isn't confined by the carceral state. I think this is important because in terms of movement uh, tactics and behavior, because if the people who run this state cannot conceive of a situation in which there is not mass black incarceration, our demands must be very specific in terms of how we want to dismantle this state. We can't leave any of it to the state's discretion. I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that we've seen that the state has had, you know, time and time again, opportunities to, quote unquote, self-correct or make amends or make things right. And it never does. But the thing is, that that's not its function, right? Its function is to continue at all costs, including human cost. And so it's really the folks who want to see a different world or in different society who are most impacted and most vulnerable in, in under these systems who are essentially tasked to reimagine and redesign what a world free of this confinement and oppression and carceral state can look like. And it, sometimes it can feel overwhelming and daunting and just such a huge task because if it's not one thing, it's another. But I think that being very intentional and thoughtful with the long-term vision in our tactics is the only way forward. And I think continuing these conversations, but putting, you know, things into play that allow us the space to even envision this world, right? When you're under constant threat 
for your life, for your safety, for your well-being, it's very challenging to dream and to envision and to create and to actually think outside of the lens of what our reality is. From the time that we're very young in this country, we start seeing power dynamics and domination from a very early age. I wrote about in the Black Study Guide, going to school and seeing SROs, police officers and metal detectors and, you know, and not really thinking that that as a child, I didn't really think that that was out of the norm, you know, because that's all I'd really ever seen. And, you know, the first time that I was able to leave the countries as a young adult and, you know, meet other students and we were talking about our high school experiences and things. And none of them had grown up with police officers or metal detectors in their schools. And I was like, wait, is that just something we have? Like, how come you guys don't have police in your schools and and, and so on and so forth? Or, you know, detention and and, uh, expulsion and juvenile. And it was just like shattering as a young adult to think that this was something that was just our experiences. And so I think it's difficult when this is the only life that you know and it and it's something that's very early on to be able to even dismantle it within our own psyche. Yes, often the term over-policing is used to describe situations like that. But that's not really over-policing, as if a little bit less of it would be better. That is the targeting and branding of whole peoples. Absolutely. And you can see a major difference between the way black and brown communities are policed and suburbia. And that is also another reality. And and I think that that's a major reason why certain groups are at the forefront um, in terms of abolition work or organizing against incarceration or doing decarceration work. And other communities are just nonchalant and oblivious to it because A, they're not impacted by it, and B, to a very high extent, their livelihood depends on the targeting, oppression, and otherization of black and brown communities, and their privilege relies heavily upon that as well. Back in June, we saw the biggest and most far-reaching demonstrations possibly ever in the United States. What's your assessment of the state of the movement? I think that the state of the movement, especially following the murder of George Floyd, is really something that's truly remarkable in the sense that I don't think anybody really expects the longevity of it and, it and it still continues in a lot of pockets around the country and also I don't think many people expected the reach of it at one point all 50 states were in active you know had active protests and and forms of resistance and then also all around the world too and and I think this is the first time you know at least in in my lifetime, or at least since I've been old enough to know what's going on, that there's been a mass sort of mobilization against police brutality and violence against Black lives. And I think that it's really too early to make a full assessment because the state does a really good job of giving 
false promises and declarations and bills and legislation and, and you name it, a number of things that pacify and appease people. And so I think it will be interesting to see to what extent that that no longer works, because I think that will be where the true assessment of where this movement is headed will lie. So I think it's just really observing, participating, agitating, um, learning, self-correcting. And I think a lot of that is really happening in this moment. You mentioned the demonstrations around the world in solidarity with the situation in the United States. But many of us believe that what's lacking here is demonstrations, expressions of solidarity by Americans, especially Black Americans, with the victims of U.S. policy around the world. You know, I would say yes and no. I think that that's a very broad sort of generalization. I think maybe the average American, irrespective of their, you know, racial background, who doesn't really pay attention to what's happening in the world, is not really going to have much solidarity with other countries in the oppression that they're facing under you know, U.S. imperialism and, and wars and, and so on and so forth. So I think it's more so the intentional, like the propaganda that the media plays and portrays in this country of the U.S. is this, you know, great power and just it's so ethnocentric and the education system really just is like America and then the rest of the world, right? Like not even really much knowledge on what's happening outside of this country. And so I think it's really largely just an American, general American phenomenon, like to not have solidarity or not really care what's happening. It's a very self-centered, individualistic mindset that's very intentional. But I do believe that when people come to consciousness, when Black Americans come to consciousness around the struggle in this country, it almost always leads towards and understanding and realization of what that oppression looks like globally. And it's not new, you know, as you and I both know, there's a long history of solidarity within the Black liberation space here in the United States and some movements around the world, whether Angela Davis, the Black Panthers, Malcolm X, the Sada Shakur, with liberation movements in Palestine, the fight for liberation in the continent in Africa, and then also during the Vietnam War, and Muhammad Ali, and so in, in the Nation of Islam, and so on and so forth. So I, that, I, you know, relationship between movements for Black liberation in the United States and in solidarity with movements for liberation abroad has always been there and there's always been that rich legacy. Um, And I think when um, Black Americans in this country are in the movement and in that level of consciousness, that solidarity is so natural and so present. In this moment, I think that we have a lot of observing to do, a lot of learning to do, and just needing to really figure out what the, the vision that we want for liberation actually is. A lot of our communities have conflicting 
views of what liberation looks like and who it's for and what it really takes to build this new world or new society that we you know seek to be in and so i think it's really important for folks to get on the same page or to understand where we're going and how we're going to get there and who we're going to get there with because not every person in the movement or every person who deeply cares about justice has the same end goal and i think that this is really a critical moment where folks are open to receiving and engaging on what that actually looks like. And so I'm interested to see what the coming months and years are going to look like. That was Aisha Noor of the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative. The Black Alliance for Peace last week held a webinar on U.S. global military policy and its impact on Africa. One of the speakers was Aziz Fall an African political scientist and member of the Group for Research and Initiative for the Liberation of Africa, or GRILA. The title of our symposium, Full Spectrum Dominance, from AFRICOM to Indo-Pacific Command, is basically the hegemonic discourse that the Pentagon's warmongers would like the world to believe. In reality, this dominance is in decline, is in peril, and it is vomited by the peoples of the world who are aware of the seriousness of the impasse that the re-election of the Trump administration would push them into. We are at the crossroad that threaten humanity, the Anthropocene and its major component, the Capitalocene, the global economic crisis and the global pandemic. In all three cases, Africa holds a solution. A greater human solidarity, an ontological respect for nature, and you can see actually the best result in the world in the face of the pandemic, despite of our underdevelopment. We are here today to enhance the repoliticization of our masses as only a vibrant democracy in which concerned and informed citizens are fully engaged in decision-making and direct action can solve our problems. We are also opposing the Comprador's forces blindly following the warmongers. And we can say that the fate of the African survival depends on the outcome of this struggle. We welcome very prudently the recent decision to pull, off, uh, to pull out troops dedicated to Africa in Stuttgart the African base in Germany. Just a friendly reminder, Grilla was among the first on the continent to stand in the way of the expansionist aim of the post-apartheid era. It is very likely that uh, this strategy that is now aging to play deployment and redeployment, it is very likely that the alleged 1,200 US African soldiers will be redeployed elsewhere in Europe mainly in, in Poland or in other US Special Operation Command or in facilities in the African continent, depending on the strategy of warmongers. The relocation plan, which might take some time to implement, does not mention what may happen with forward bases like Ramstein, the strategic hub in the Middle East and Africa, and the headquarters of the US uh, force in Africa, like the US Special Operation Command. 
This is why we beg, we ask all progressive Americans to pressure their government to close these imperialist bases and to dismantle the so-called US strategic control of the African continent. Also, it has been almost 10 years now that we launched this campaign against AFRICOM. Guerrilla denounced AFRICOM in 2009 and launched in 2013 on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the African independence, a declaration called AFRICOM go home, neither in Africa nor in Germany. You can find that on the Grillo website. This is the very nature of imperialism, but imperialism is also slowly in a metamorphosis process. Imperialism from its multiple origins in the 17th century was refined after the Second World War under the dominant segment of the triad, the US, Europe, and Japan, and since the collapse of the USSR, has been undergoing the unipolar hegemony of the US. The dominant segment of transnational capital have essentially joined this movement under neoliberalism, even when the United States does not redistribute the share of this monopoly equitably. Successive White House administration have ambivalent attitudes toward the role of multinational bodies, the World Bank, IMF, WTO, or even the OECD, but even also NATO, where some European countries, which assert themselves in foreign policy, find their alliance cumbersome. The United States, especially under the Bush, Obama, and Trump administrations, continue to extend the Monroe Doctrine. It extends its Monroe Doctrine to the world, but also to its own society. You have seen how American society is military squared off and how the police and justice system is supported by a military apparatus that perpetuates impunity. We are all outraged today by the decision of the Louisville prosecutor not to prosecute for homicide the police officer who killed Breonna Taylor. Breonna Taylor, 26-year-old African-American woman, was murdered in her bed on March 13 when three officers broke into her home and broke down the door. We stand in solidarity with the struggle of Black Lives Matter activists and the global movement challenging anti-Black racism and white supremacy, and all those who fight against this racist and state violence. The movement to defend the police illustrate the coercive state function and whose interests they serve. This violence is translated outside the world in a quite simplistic American policy, as Samir Amin has clearly analyzed it and just refer to the film called Samir Amin, the organic internationalist that you can find in YouTube where in length he really depicts this strategy. But basically what it is, this strategy aims to contain its own European and Japanese allies and maintain their yoke on them by ensuring supremacy over NATO and adapting its strategy of Latin Americanization of any space it deems useful around the world. To ensure control of the oil slicks and vital transport resources and access to its markets. To also weaken Russia and China and any other emerging country likely to oppose its doctrine. But also to thwart nationalist or progressive experiments throughout the global south that could challenge locally the global order it establishes and ensure that less useful regions of the world remain marginalized. To maintain this unjust order, military uh, spending have been 
doubled. Repression has increased everywhere. World prison numbers have increased, almost 24%, and border agencies are mushrooming everywhere, following the American uh, model. So surveillance and data technologies, monitoring and controlling activists and populations are generalized. This Marshall strategy translates into the division of the world into regional deployment and high command that aimed at achieving the objective set out uh, earlier and locally co-opting armed force or maintaining conflict to legitimize its sponsorship. A lot of leaders and entrepreneurs around the world follow and support blindly this flawed uh, vision that is slowly crystallizing into a front of warmongers comprising the world's most reactionary state. For us, it has been quite difficult over the years to convince our American brothers and sisters of the relevance of our struggle for all sorts of reasons. Among others, the American propaganda about its role as protector of the world, the constant propaganda depicting our advocacy as conspiracy analysis, the co-optation of American civilian and military in the rhetoric of America's patriotic defense, but also the increasing destabilization of terrorism in Africa. But mainly our greater weakness, if I may say, um, is the fact that we could not really translate uh, to our own masses uh, the complex dynamic of uh, their ex expression. Because first, our masses are caught up in the management of daily life and the problems of underdevelopment, and they are often perceiving these issues are too complex, long-term, or without really capacity to control them. Uh, this must be also added to the powerlessness of our elite who have surrendered to the blackmail of uh, the geo-strategists from Washington, and they are often dependent of the outside financially, uh, technologically, and militarily supporting them. Um, and the, the worst scenario is, in fact, the weakness of the Pan-Africanist uh, strategy, uh, where we are scattered and spreaded in many, many families. So uh, the extension and the extension of this American system and the co-optation of our military leadership and regimes uh, is actually uh, quite significant. And for sure, the Americans are not the, the only one. The French presence also we should mention, and we have new players like Russia, Turkey, and even China. Um, as it is uh, predicted in that film, and also uh, showed in a recent study from the University of Maryland, um, truly uh, there is no uh, decrease of the so-called transnational attacks. In fact, we witness an increase of these uh, so-called transnational attacks and terrorism. And uh, everyone could see the catastrophe of Libya today and how so many forces have undermined this country. So the American administration changed, but the system remained the same. The US is in fact a great power that tries to temper its decline by cunning and force. And this explains, in fact, why we have today a resurgence of uh, NATO and American strategy toward the, the continent to contain China and other BRICS states. Uh, for us, it had been quite clear that uh, 
the situation that we are facing in um, in regard to the economy of our countries uh, is probably the most difficult to to address uh, due to the disintegration as a result of more than three decades of structural adjustments, downsizing of the state, uh, managerial governance, uh, democratic diversion and depolitization. Most of the African states at the military level and the civilian level have been scattered, weakened, and disunite uh, over the fundamental issues of occupation uh, of those military forces, whether on theater of conflict in Congo, in Libya or Burkina Faso, or elsewhere in Nigeria or even in Mozambique. And the case of Mali is probably one of the most interesting that is uh, revealing these days. But basically, there is a blackmail uh, of instability that threatens most of our countries. And this unusual insecurity on the continent uh, is certainly fueled by a strategy of uh, maintaining marginal areas and, and controlling the wealth of the resources in others. Uh, the United States surround Chinese territory with a string of bases, but it's the same strategy that they are trying to do uh, in the African continent by trying to undermine the, the role of, of China in the 21st century under the guise of the war on terror uh, that has done everything but get rid of terrorism. So, uh, you know, this word capitalist uh, system creates an aspiration that it cannot uh, satisfy for the multitude, uh, who of course are attracted by the beam of light like uh, flabbergasted butterflies. And a lot of our youth today are kind of lost with this uh, American propaganda, you know, can go through music, through sport, etc. But in fact, it is a very complex hegemonical system uh, that uh, try to temper their decline and co-opt the bourgeoisie of the emerging countries and the African states into this big agenda. So, you know, uh, it is up to Africa to defend its sovereignty and to take advantage uh, of the diversified South-South perspective of cooperation and solidarity that are still possible. It is uh, now the time to reinforce the Pan-African strong uh, uh, position on building a stronger state, uh, a confederal state, and this is something that uh, is the only option to fight against the uh, implosion that they want to create. And these military powers competing on our soil are not omnipotent. They are riddled with contradictions and could not abuse their advantage so much if Africa is united. Unfortunately for now, most of our regimes are comprador, meaning they are subordinate to imperialism, and they have only a short-term view in managing this crisis. We believe that this is the cornerstone of our struggle, try to convince uh, with decision makers that this is the wrong path. And, uh, you know, we have defeated apartheid and we'll continue to fight for the sovereignty of the entire continent so that the children and diaspora can once again uh, flourish there. And I'm sure that uh, the effort of BAP, among other uh, efforts of activists, will certainly allow us to succeed very soon. Thank you. That was political scientist Aziz Fall speaking at a webinar of the Black Alliance for Peace. The movement to defend the Earth's environment has, of necessity, become largely a movement against capitalism. We spoke with Yolian Ogbu, a student organizer of Eritrean descent 
who serves on the National Operations Team of the Climate Crisis Organization, This is Zero Hour. This is Zero Hour is kind of reflective of the fact that, like, we don't have time left in terms of the climate crisis. Like, time is completely up. Recently, there was something on the Washington Post displaying a huge ticking clock showing the time left that we have to combat the climate crisis before climate change really roots this entire earth. And that is exactly what we're trying to convey in the title, This is Zero Hour, for the organization. Now, we've had an ecology movement in this country since the mm-hmm. 1960s. And by now, everybody says that they're for maintaining a livable earth. But most of them blame the condition that the earth is in on all of mm-hmm. us, as if 7 billion mm-hmm. people messed up their planet. Right. And I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up because it actually stems from a pretty eco-fascist argument in that that idea that it's because we are suffering overpopulation or there are too many people on you know the earth that are here, I think that stems from a lot of, in my mind at least, like racist environmentalists that are providing solutions that are not sustainable to the actual crisis. And that's what This Is Zero Hour is wanting to combat. Not only that ideology, but changing our mindset to think it's bigger than the people and the amount of people on this earth. It's about the systems and how do we combat the systems that are perpetuating the climate crisis. And those systems are, according to your platform, capitalism, Mm -hmm. racism, sexism, and colonialism. Yep, exactly it. Well, that means that the movement for a sustainable and safe ecology is actually a movement to get rid of the current regime, uh, the one that's run by the polluters. Right, exactly it. And that's why we have campaigns that want to defund the fossil fuel industry and invest in actual industries that matter. And also, I think at this time, really interesting to talk about the movement for Black lives and how that is actually something that the ecological movement also needs to be pushing because they're just, they're one and the same. How so? How I see it is when I kind of got into the climate justice movement, it was because I was brought in by a fellow Black woman who had told me that racial justice and climate justice is one and the same. And that if we want to fight for a more sustainable world, we need to combat the inequities in this current world and in this current system. There's a reason why environmental racism exists and has been pervasive in this country across the world for centuries. There's a reason why there's an argument that the global South's fault for pollution when actually it's the capitalist's fault for, for pollution. And so when I say the movement for Black lives is also one in the same with the movement for climate justice, if we don't fight for Black lives when climate change, when the climate crisis does hit in the way that we anticipate it will, the people that will be taken out first are the people that are most oppressed or most marginalized on this earth. And that definitely includes Black people all across the world. 
So real climate change prevention isn't just about the fossil fuel industry making the oil companies and related industries refine products in a different way. It's also about remaking society and the way it consumes and distributes everything. Exactly. Exactly it. I think about housing segregation and how that also plays a factor in black and brown children's most likely going to get asthma or other different respiratory diseases. And you you see that all across the country, depending on where you live, that is basically the case. You say you'd like to see a firmer connection and interaction and coordination between your organization and others in the environmental sphere with Black Lives Matter. How do you think that would operate? I think the first thing is recognizing that for so long, we've kind of seen this gap in the environmental justice movement where the idea that the climate crisis is mutually exclusive from tackling, dismantling oppressive systems such as white supremacy and things like that. I think once we recognize that that is the foundation of the climate crisis and of climate change, then once we understand that that is a precursor to the climate crisis, we can start to make amends. I think how we can do that is we must interact with organizations rooted in racial justice, rooted in working with gender-based justice or any such organizations that may not be talking specifically about climate justice, but recognizing that we are all interconnected in the things that we are fighting for. I also think when we think about that question about, you know, working with Black Lives Matter groups, I think sometimes what that does is minimize the Black environmentalists in the movement, because there are quite a few Black environmentalists or even Black climate justice activists who don't tend to be put on center stage, such as Greta Thunberg and so many other notable youth climate activists. What This Is Zero is attempting to do here is bring climate activists of color on the forefront of the conversation. Those that are on the front lines of the climate crisis that are facing these issues and right in the backyard, right in the backyard of their homes, I think that they're the ones that deserve to speak up about the issue and be talking about the solution. So when we talk about interacting with the Black Lives Matter movement, I think we need to recognize the Black Lives Matter movement is within the environmental justice movement. It's just whether or not those types of people are being heard. You're already working closely with a social justice organization called Cooperation Jackson, based in Jackson, Mississippi. You've endorsed Cooperation Jackson's demands. Yes, we have. So around May 1st, which is is known for internationally as May Day, we got together with several organizations. I worked closely with the Corona Strike Coalition to create a national and push for a national strike, a national labor strike. Why this has anything to do with the climate justice scene to me is because I sat in the climate justice movement as they specifically kind of use climate justice activists have been striking for all of 2019. And I think that is kind of what has opened the conversation a lot more in terms of protests. So I saw the connection between what climate activists are doing and the connection with essential workers and 
the labor movement and how can we connect this team? I saw Cooperation Jackson making those connections, which is why it was so important to support their demands, their efforts, as well as other coalitions. Now, of course, a strike is not a passive, we are not doing anything kind right. of activity. It is right. action. Tell us about what kinds of actions you've been engaged in. The strike is one of the final steps. But before we get to a strike, you know, we had to have worked with several unions, several climate justice organizations and other nonprofits that were willing to bring this message to the mainstream as much as they could. I think that was the first thing talking about these issues and having these conversations. In terms of actions, we have been working with unions on creating wildcat strikes and, you know, helping workers specifically on the ground, whether they have been ravaged by the fossil fuel industry We've been working with them to allow them to have as many resources and tools to be able to strike when necessary. Around the time that we were having the national strike on May 1st, we also saw Chris Smalls, who is the Amazon worker that had also striked, also engage with us in such ways. I think our biggest action has been since then creating a huge network of people that are willing to strike, that have, that have striked, and that are waiting to strike. So what you envision is an environmental movement that is totally integrated with a whole host of progressive forces exactly. in the country and internationally. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. Um, I think that's the only way we can actually achieve climate justice. And yet we don't see the Green New Deal getting very far, even among Democrats in the Congress. Right. And that is why I think the, we're taking the movement past electoral politics, because it's more than that. I think we know that the Green New Deal is the bare minimum of addressing climate justice. It doesn't even scratch the surface of all that we need to do to combat this existential issue. So we, knowing that, we made sure that we support the Green New Deal but it's more than that. And we obviously are not surprised to see even the most quote-unquote progressive Democrats kind of also cheating on their support with the Green New Deal or making it past Congress. So we're disappointed, but we're not surprised. And I think that that's why we're working on building power and building this movement outside of the walls of Congress, because we know that that's where real change will be made. And this has been a very tumultuous year, and it's not over. But in your view, from your perspective, have you noted a palpable change in the popular consciousness around the environment? I definitely have. I think that, if anything, this year has shown us and proven to a lot of folks the power of intersectional movements. And, and like I said earlier how important it is for the environmentalist movement to work tangentially with so many other movements. I think this year proved it. Month after month, we're seeing crisis hit, whether it's in relation to racial justice or if we're just seeing it happen with workers or any marginalized group, we're seeing crises pop up everywhere. And I think that this is obviously not new. If anything, the pandemic has exacerbated the effects of these particular issues. So I feel like this year has changed or has the potential to change a lot of people's minds about how they view climate justice and not only seeing it from that very, I would say, very um, 
minimal, like white basic lens of, you know, saving the environment and the ocean and recycling, but realizing that it's a lot deeper than that. Yolian Ogbu of This Is Zero Hour, speaking from Dallas, Texas. Christopher Trotter is a black man who's been behind bars for almost four decades. He filed this report for prison radio. Dear outside world, my name is Christopher Trotter. I'm calling from inside the Belly of the Beast at Wabash Valley Correctional Facility, Carlisle, Indiana. I would like to speak to you in regards of prisoners with violent cases being oppressed and forgotten about. While I understand the public's concern regarding prisoners with violent cases, the public is only hearing one side of the story. It seems as if prisoners with violent cases, lives do not matter, or are deemed by those in power as being unable to be rehabilitated. In Indiana, in the past 30 years, there has not been one deal passed giving rehabilitated violent offenders a second chance, but allowing them to die in prison. Like, for instance, during the coronavirus pandemic, there was only discussion regarding releasing nonviolent offenders while leaving offenders with violent cases to die by the coronavirus, which is a sentence that prisoners were not sentenced to. Guess. All prisoners with violent cases are not bad people. It's just that politicians, prosecutors, and judges have decided to put them in all one category. However, there are two classes of violent prisoners. There's one class of prisoners who are actually remorseful and have demonstrated this in their everyday walk in prison. He or she has completed every educational and vocational program that prison has to offer. While in prison, they have maintained clear conduct reports, stayed drug and alcohol-free, volunteering, making their times doing various different things and helping others. And then you have another class of violent prisoners who come to prison and don't do anything to better themselves. But that's not the point I'm trying to make. The point is that we should be given a second chance. We understand the nature of our charges will not change. But the man can change. It is clear in Indiana, especially, that the lawmakers have been rendering vindictive justice whether it's operating on a principle of reformation. Now to speak about myself. I've completed every program the DOC has to offer me. I've gotten my education, vocational programs. I've taken Thank It For a Change, Stress Management, Anger Management, Shakespeare in the Shoe. I've completed the PLUS program, Purpose Living Unit Serve. But still, I've not given a second chance. I haven't had a conduct report in over eight years. So there has to be something wrong with the system. When is enough enough? When is the system going to truly start to believe in rehabilitation? Opposed to this vindictive justice. I'm not in prison for killing anyone or raping anyone or molesting anyone. All I did was help someone. Now it's time for the system to work for me and others that have taken the initiative to rehabilitate themselves. 
Do you say these men don't deserve a second chance of life? And life? Is this system truly bent on vindictive justice? Instead of allowing a person to rehabilitate themselves and judging that person on the progress that he has made since his incarceration, giving that person a second chance at life? There has to be something wrong with this system. Because it's not right. It's not fair. And if we allow this system to continue to just vindictively incarcerate people without any means of letting them out, what does that say as a society? What does it say? I've been in prison 38 years now. I'm a changed man. Shouldn't I deserve a second chance of life? I wasn't sentenced to death. But do I deserve to die a slow death in prison? Does rehabilitation mean anything? Let me know what you think out there. Because I think it's wrong. I think the system is wrong. And if we don't do something about it, there'd be a lot of people that have changed their lives for the better. Only they end up dying in prison, never receiving a second chance. Because for kicks to show, those prisoners that have been done 30 or 40 years in prison, the recidivism rate is low for them. While your so-called non-violent prisoners are the ones that constantly play a part in the revolving door of prison. Either the system needs to change or the system needs to be abolished. And the way I see it right now is it needs to be abolished because it's not fair. Thank you for listening to me. My name is Christopher Trotter. And prisoners' lives matter too. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. <laughs>